The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6, reading from verse 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We come back again to this most important statement, and let me preface what we have to say this morning by reminding you as to why this is such an important statement. There can be no doubt at all, it seems to me, that the ultimate cause of most failure in the Christian life and most unhappiness in the Christian life is the failure to understand the nature of this life. We all start with some kind of romantic, almost novelette conception of the Christian life. And the result is, of course, that sooner or later we are bound to be disappointed. Having started with the impression that becoming Christian, we no longer have any problems at all, that everything has been done and everything's solved. We go along and suddenly find ourselves immersed in and surrounded by problems and difficulties and trials. And so we become discouraged and perhaps even tempted to doubt as to whether the Christian message was true after all. Now the answer to all that is the teaching of the Bible itself, and especially such a passage as this, which tells us quite plainly and explicitly that we are involved in a fight, a tremendous struggle. Stand, that's the question. Can you stand? Can you withstand? We're in the midst of a great and a mighty battle. Now, we are therefore looking at this, and we are doing so in great detail and taking our time to do so for the reason I've just given, that it is the failure to understand this teaching that accounts for so many of the disappointments and the heartaches. Now, we have emphasized, therefore, that it is a conflict, and not only a conflict, but uh, not a conflict against flesh and blood. We are not up against men. We are not up against mankind. We are not up against human nature. We are engaged in a tremendous spiritual battle. And we ended our Sunday morning by uh, dealing with the criticisms that are uh, often leveled against this particular teaching. The world regards this, of course, as quite ridiculous. The idea that anybody should still believe in the devil and these spiritual forces, the world regards as almost madness. It's sure insult they feel to one's intelligence and understanding. Well, we answered those objections and showed that ultimately it comes to this, that if you don't believe in these uh, spiritual powers that are set against us, it is probably because you don't really believe in the spiritual realm at all. For if you believe in the Holy Spirit, you ought to ask yourself, why do I say Holy Spirit? And there's only one answer. Well, there must be evil spirits, unholy, wicked spirits. So, you see, it's just a question of 
finally, of knowing whether we believe in the spiritual unseen realm at all. And still more does it come to us as a question as to whether we really believe the Bible and the authority of the Scriptures. Are we guided by modern philosophy? Or are we guided by this revelation of God? Very well. Let us then go on uh, having looked in that way and uh, having answered these uh, trivial, foolish, skeptical uh, criticisms of this teaching. Let us go on to look at the teaching itself and to consider what it has to tell us in detail. I would remind you again that we are doing this morning what is probably the most practical thing that Christian people can ever do. We are examining the real cause of the present state of this world. Here it is, and it is the only adequate explanation. So let me put it like this to you. Let us look for a moment at the nature of these forces that are set against us. That's the first thing we've got to do. Our Lord himself teaches us to do that. You remember in the 14th chapter of Luke's Gospel, he tells a parable of a man who went to battle, to war, without really understanding the strength of the enemy and therefore not having sufficient resources, and how he was discomfited, and how he failed and was conquered. Now that's utterly foolish, says our Lord, and he's applying that parable to his own followers. So it comes to us this morning. The first thing we've got to do is to know something of the strength and the power of the enemy that is set against us. One could illustrate this almost endlessly. You see, that was the whole trouble, wasn't it, in the 30s? There was only one lone voice who kept on warning this country of what was happening in Germany. Nobody would believe it. They, they didn't want to be bothered by hearing about the rearmament of Germany and so on. No, no, we were having a good time. Let's enjoy ourselves. Life was wonderful. Well, that's how you arrive in a condition in which the whole situation seems not only precarious, but almost lost in 1940. Because uh, people wouldn't take the trouble to listen to what was happening in the territory of the enemy. Now, this is infinitely more important in the spiritual realm. And a man who doesn't understand the teaching of the Apostle here is well, he's either fast asleep in the arms of the devil, or he is a very defeated Christian. Now then, look at these forces. Well, take the terms that are used. The first is, of course, the devil. Put on the whole armor of God, that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, we must start here, because here, according to the teaching of the Scripture, is the chief of all the powers that are set against us. There are many names ascribed to him. Here he is called the devil. He is also called Satan. That's the term that is commonly used in the Old Testament. You'll also find it in the New. Satan. But there are many other terms ascribed to him. Beelzebub, Belial, the evil one, the wicked one the strong man arm, and so on. Now, these are some of the terms, I say, that are uh, applied to the devil. And, of course, they're given in order that we may understand something uh, about the devil 
and his nature. And what one therefore gathers from the teaching is this. That we must think of the devil in a personal sense. The devil is not just a force, not just a power. You see, the same errors are committed on both sides. There are many people who don't believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. They talk about it. But the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not just a power, not just an influence. And so many of our errors, you see, in the doctrine of the Spirit and of sanctification and so on, they arise from a fundamental failure just to realize that the Spirit is personal. And so, you see, people use illustrations about the Holy Spirit as if almost he was some kind of liquid that can be poured from one vessel into another. But the Holy Spirit is a person. So is the devil. He. We have to start by realizing, I say, that the devil is a person, has personality, is a distinct and separate entity. Not only that, we are given to understand very clearly that the devil is a superhuman personality. Bigger than men, stronger than men, greater than men. And yet at the same time, it's made very plain and clear that he is not divine. Here is a very important distinction. You see, there was an ancient heresy which taught more or less that there were two gods it was the sort of dualism or dualistic teaching. There was the great God, the Creator, but there was another God, this kind of demiurge, they called him. Uh, and some would even have thought that he was the actual Creator. At any rate, he had great power and control. But they said that he was a God over against God. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches that the devil is superhuman, but he is not divine. He is less than divine. He is a created being. I will come back, I trust, uh, to this again. But I just emphasize that point in passing. Then, of course, the great thing that is emphasized is the point that is emphasized here. And that is his power. The power of the devil. You need to put on the whole armor of God, says the apostle, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Power. Now listen to the terms that are used in the scripture. To bring out this power. We've already encountered one of them in chapter 2 of this great epistle in the second verse. Where he is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. The leader, you see, the prince, the chieftain. But then the apostle uses that uh, expression concerning him in writing, you remember, to the Corinthians second epistle, chapter 4, verse 4, where he talks about the God of this world. If our gospel be hid, he says, it is hid in them that are lost, in whom the God of this world. Now, he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying that he is God. What he's saying is, as we shall see in detail in a moment, that he is, as it were, the God of this world. This world. He isn't a God, but he's the God of this world. But that again gives us some impression of his might and his authority and his power. The God of this world. Then take another term. Take the one used by our Lord himself as 
quoted there in the 11th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. The strong man arm. Now that's our Lord's own picture. The devil, the one with whom we are confronted, is like a, a very powerful strong man, fully armed, keepeth his goods at peace. It's all suggestive of this tremendous power and authority. You remember that the Apostle Peter describes him in these terms. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. He's the mightiest of them all. And there is nothing that gives such an impression of strength and force and latent power as a roaring lion. He roars and all creation trembles. Well, says Peter, the devil is like that. Then you remember the description given and the term, the designation used in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. We read it last Sunday morning. Great red dragon. A dragon is again a picture of might and power. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. And listen, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. Now these descriptions, and there are others, but I just select those. He's called a great dragon. And then another term is that old serpent, the devil. The serpent, again, all these convey not ideas not only of subtlety, but of strength. And of great power. Indeed, it's perfectly clear from the Bible that the power of the devil is second only to that of the Godhead. There's no question about that teaching. The devil comes in power. Next only to the power of the triune God. Very well, if that is the power of the devil, what does he do? What is his purpose? And the very words that are used to describe him and to designate him answer the question. What's the meaning of the word devil? It is traducer. What is the meaning of the word Satan? It is adversary. And these, of course, are the actual terms that are used in the scripture. He is called the accuser of our brethren. That's what he is. That's his purpose. That's his object. He is also referred to as your adversary. The devil, he's an adversary who is set against us, an opponent, a foe, the leader of an army set against us. He is also referred to as the tempter. In other words, uh, he comes and he would tempt us, and mislead us and delude us, the tempter. But it's all summed up again in, in a phrase, in a statement that's used in the book of Revelation. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And we heard it again in that 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. War against the saints. Now, this is the, um, this is the business. This is the whole purpose of the devil. And how vitally important it is that we should realize all this, that we've got an adversary. That we've got someone who is always set against us, tempting us, 
trying to drag us down and to destroy us, someone who's ever ready to accuse us. This is the teaching. But we mustn't stop even at that. A great deal is said here about his subtlety, the wiles of the devil. I'm not going to deal with that this morning. I'm keeping that back. It's a subject in and of itself. But uh, uh, you remember that he is referred to as a liar and as the father of lies, and that he was a liar from the very beginning. All this is a part of the teaching. But still more significant in the light of what we've got in this 12th verse in this section is this. That it is not very clearly that the devil, this mighty person, has a kingdom. He has a dynasty. He rules and he reigns in a certain realm. Did you notice our Lord himself teaching that in the 11th chapter of Luke's gospel in that portion which we read? He said, if you say that I'm casting out devils by Beelzebub, well then you are saying that Beelzebub is divided against himself. You are saying that Satan, as it were, is fighting against Satan. And he argues that if Satan is thus fighting against Satan, that his kingdom must be divided. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Now, this is the point of transition, you see, to what we are told in the twelfth verse. There is the picture of the devil, this mighty prince of the power of the air, this king, and he's got a kingdom, he's got servants, emissaries, followers. It's a veritable kingdom. Now then, let us go on to consider what the Apostle tells us about something about this kingdom. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, he says. Well, what do we wrestle against in addition to the devil? The answer is principalities. Towers. Against principalities. Against powers. Now, what are these? Well, it's very interesting here to notice that the apostle used exactly the same terms in the 21st verse of the first chapter of this epistle. Go back to that. Have a look at it. He is anxious that we should realize the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Principalities and powers. Same words exactly as we have here. And yet patently and obviously not referring to the same beings. The very context makes it clear in chapter 1 verse 21 that he is uh, referring there to heavenly principalities and powers. Some of these mighty agencies that are surrounding the throne of God, you'll find them described in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, the beasts and the elders and all these other myriads, principalities and powers surrounding the throne of God, God's agents, emissaries, part of his great eternal kingdom. Well, you see, what, we, what is being emphasized here is this. That as God is surrounded by such powers, so is the devil. So is the devil. The devil is not alone. 
He has his agents and his agencies. But these are very different from the ones that are surrounding the throne of God. These, of course, are evil, as we shall see. But the important thing to realize here is this, that you and I as Christian people passing through this world of time are being confronted by that, by the devil with all these principalities and powers ready to do his behest as the angels of God are ready to go on their journeys and to minister unto our well-being, as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews reminds us at the end of chapter 1, so the devil has his agents that he can send here and there, hither and thither, principalities and powers. And of course, what is again emphasized about them is their great power and authority. They have a governmental position. And they have real authority and power in an executive sense. You may say, why does he talk about principalities and powers? Why the two words? Well, that is the distinction between the two. The idea of principality gives the notion of inherent power. The power suggests more the expression of that, the manifestation of that, all that really being put into practice or harnessed to something. So you have this mighty power which is able to execute the orders of the prince of the power of the air. You see, the power, these are the powers, but there's a prince over them, that's the devil. Then we come to this next phrase, which is so significant. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world, now that's the translation here of this authorized version, but the better translation, I think most people would agree, is this against the world rulers of this darkness. That's it. Not so much the rulers of the darkness of this world, but against the world rulers of this darkness. Now look at it like that. Let's break it up. Take the term world rulers. Here again is a term that is designed, of course, to bring out the extent and the scope of the power and of the authority. We use this term in a political sense, don't we? There have been certain people in the course of history who stood out as world rulers. It was the ambition of Hitler to be a world ruler, not content with just ruling one country or even one continent, Napoleon likewise, world conquest. It was the ambition to become a world ruler, governing the whole world, commanding it, controlling it, determining its affairs and the welfare or ill of its people. Now, that's exactly the term that is used here. It's one word in the original and a very powerful word. Word it is. And it conjures up this whole notion of power to govern and to rule the whole world. Now, the word world here, of course, has a very special connotation. And it's essential we should grasp this. The world here means uh, the world outside or the world not submitting to the government of God. We use that expression quite commonly, don't we? We say that a man now is in the church. He was in the world. 
But of course, a Christian is still in the world. So when you say that a Christian is no longer in the world, you're speaking in a spiritual sense. Now, that's the kind of connotation of the word world here. It has this spiritual meaning. It is the world apart from God, or the world rebellious against God. The world as organized apart from the laws and the government of God. Now then, what the apostle is saying is this, that we are confronted by powers that are really governing and controlling that world. The world as it is in opposition against God. The world outside God and his blessing. Now this is surely a most vital matter for us to understand and to grasp and to realize at a time like this. You and I, we often say, don't we, we are, we are up against what? Well, the world and the flesh and the devil. The world, what's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean the material universe. The mountains and the hills and the rivers and the sea are not against us. No, no, we can enjoy them and should enjoy them. The people, quay people, are not against us. Well, no, but it's the world that's against us. And the world means that outlook, that whole organization, the tremendous power of evil in which we are living, as it were, and it's everywhere around and about us. And our business is to be in this world, but not of it, as we put it. That's it. Now, these powers are the rulers, the governors, the controllers of that mind, that outlook, which we call the world. But fortunately for us, the apostle defines it still more closely. He says that we are wrestling against the world rulers of this darkness. Now there's the significant term. This world about which he's talking, you see, is a place of darkness. Now here again is the term that is universally implied by the scriptures uh, to define that uh, mind, that outlook, that way of living that is not governed and controlled by God. We've already had it in this epistle. Take, for instance, in chapter 4, we've read this in verse 18. This, I say, says, therefore, in verse 17, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Well, how do they walk? Well, they walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened. That's it. Darkened. It's in the dark. It's darkened. He's also given us the same thing in chapter 5, in verse 8, still more specifically. He says, you were sometimes darkness, but are now light in the Lord. Now, when we were dealing with that, you remember I emphasized this, that he didn't merely say that they were once in the dark. He says the darkness was in them. They were darkness. It isn't merely that they were in a fog, the fog was inside them also. Darkness without and within. Now that is the state of the world. Now this is, I say, his common description. Look at it again in the epistle to the Colossians in the first chapter and verse 13. He is thanking God for these Colossians. What does he say about them? Well, he says, this is the truth. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Christian people, do you normally habitually think of yourselves as people who have been delivered from the powers of darkness? I wonder how many of us think of it. What's your view of salvation? What happens when you're converted, when you become a Christian? 
Ah, you say, my sins are forgiven. I know, thank God for that. We'd be all undone but for that. But do you always add this? Delivered from the powers of darkness. You were once held by them. You were once the slave of those powers. And it is vital that we should realize it. So, you see, it's not surprising the apostle puts it like this and constantly puts it like this because this was a part of his great commission. You remember our Lord met him on the road to Damascus and uh, this is what he said to him. Rise, stand upon thy feet. I'm reading from Acts 26, beginning at verse 16. I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of the things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee. What for? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan, which is the same thing as being in darkness, you see, unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. It's the same everywhere. Doesn't it strike you as being rather strange, Christian people, that we think so little about these things? That this whole aspect of the matter comes so little into our thoughts. It's all because we are too subjective. We start with ourselves and we end with ourselves. I want peace with God. I want my sins forgiven. I want to feel happy. I want a sort of kick in my life. I want this. I want that. I want to overcome that temptation. Why don't we realize that our salvation is to be thought of always in these terms primarily? Because, you see, you may have this, that, and the other. But if you don't realize this, you'll still be in bondage. And your Christian life will be very poor. This is how it's put in the scriptures. We have to be brought from the power of darkness, from the power of the devil, before we can receive forgiveness of sins. That's the first thing, according to what our Lord told Paul in his commission on the road to Damascus. Very well. Now then, what does he mean by this darkness? Well, clearly it means primarily ignorance. The darkness of ignorance. And that's the whole trouble with the world this morning. It's utterly ignorant. Look at it in another way. You can say it's blind. What's it ignorant of? It's ignorant of God. The vast majority of the people in the world at this moment are not thinking about God. Why? Well, because they're ignorant. They know nothing about him. They boast of their learning, their culture, their sophistication. You know, the whole trouble with an unbeliever is his appalling ignorance, his darkness. That's why no Christian should ever be troubled to the slightest extent by these pontifical pronouncements made by these people, these supposed great and brilliant philosophers. They're just blind, they're ignorant, they don't know. The natural men receiveth not the things of the, of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto them. If our gospel be hid, it is it to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. They can't. They're the slaves of the devil, the God of this world hath blinded them. They're in the dark, they're enshrouded by darkness, and the darkness is in their very minds. Their minds are dark. What a terrible state it is. They know nothing of God. And you know they know nothing of themselves even. They know nothing about the true greatness of man. 
They know nothing about the soul, you see. They don't believe in the soul. Not aware of it. That's darkness. They know nothing about the most glorious thing about men. And the result is that they don't understand life at all. You see, these great thinkers, so-called, are really quite baffled by the present state of the world this morning. They can't understand it. Poor old H.G. Wells, having taught for a long lifetime that if only you educated people, they'd never fight again. There he is trying to write his last book about 20 years ago, and you remember his title, Mind at the End of Its Terror. Of course. Poor men, he couldn't understand it. See, this century was meant to be the most glorious century of all. Of course, it should have been if they were right. We were still more educated than we were last century, and that was more than the one before. Knowledge grows from age to age, says Tennyson. Of course, it's all going forward. We must be better. But it's obviously worse, and they don't understand. They're completely baffled and bewildered. Why? Well, because they're in the dark. We use that expression, don't we? You say the men feel hopelessly in the dark about it. And you enlighten well, now, the world, you see, is ignorant about all this. It knows nothing about death, likewise. It knows nothing about what lies beyond death. There, there they are, lying in their beds this morning, reading the news of the world, and feeling sorry for us fancy people, they say, doing this in the 20th century, going to a place of worship and listening to the exposition of the Scripture. They're intelligent, they're emancipated. Men of the world, men of knowledge and of learning, reading what I gather you read in such a paper. And in other papers, similar. But what's the matter? Well, you see, they, they, they not only know nothing about themselves and about the real meaning of life. They know nothing about death. They don't know that it is appointed unto all men once to die, and after death, the judgment? Judgment? They scoff at it. They don't, but of course they do. They scoff at God. They scoffed at the Lord Jesus Christ. They've scoffed at all the saints. Why? Well, because they're in the dark and darkness is in them. It's this appalling ignorance. And the world rulers of this darkness are gloating over it all and enjoying it as they see these intelligent dupes of theirs, these sophisticated ignoramuses. The world rulers of this darkness. They keep it going. They're at the back of it all. They're manipulating the press and all these other agencies. Of course, they do it in the way that we shall come to consider later. But the point is we're, that we're emphasizing here that they are the world rulers of this darkness. And all that, of course, expresses itself in the kind of life that such people live. Well, what is it? Well, again, I say go to your newspapers and you'll see how this darkened mind expresses itself in practice, in conduct and in behavior. Oh, now he's fighting now a legal action to allow filth to be printed. Of course, it's not unnatural. But you see, that's regarded as sophistication, culture, great literature. That's how the darkness expresses and manifests itself. Now, the question that any intelligent man should ask is this. Now, why is all this? Why do people behave like this? What's the matter with the nations building up these armaments that are capable of destroying the whole world? What's the matter with all this immorality and all the collapse we are seeing all around us everywhere? Any intelligent man ought to ask, well, now, what causes all this? But they don't ask that question. If they did, they'd discover there's only one answer. There are world rulers who are manipulating all this. 
It isn't just flesh and blood. It isn't just an occasional millionaire who wants to make money out of vice and pornography. It isn't just certain people who want to batten on the hire of women's bodies. It isn't that men just want to grow rich through having places of evil uh, and vice. No, no, they're but the little instruments. World rulers of this darkness. We are not up against men, says Paul, not flesh and blood. These powers that are behind. But let me hurry on. Well, there it is, you see, and then it come, we come to the last term. The last term being this, against spiritual wickedness in high places, as it's put here. Again, we must amend this translation. It isn't so much wickedness as wicked spirits. It's spiritual forces of wickedness that the apostle is talking about. Not spiritual wickedness. You see, wickedness is uh, abstract, isn't it? And that's the thing we must avoid at all costs. The apostle's emphasizing that all these are personal. So instead of saying spiritual wickedness, we say wicked spirits. Perhaps the best translation is this. We are up against uh, spiritual wickedness or spiritual bands of evil, or still better, spiritual cohorts of evil. Cohorts. Battalions. Legions. That's the notion. Here it is, says the apostle, there are these myriads of spirits of evil, wickedness. Their nature is evil. Their very commission is evil. And their work is evil. Oh, it's all evil, ugly, foul, wicked. That's what they are, he says. They're all thoroughly evil in their very natures and in their object and purpose and in all that they bring to pass. And we've been looking at it. Well, now then, there is his description, but he says that they're in high places, according to this revised, authorized translation. Again, you see, it's interesting. Why did they say high places here? Because when they were translating the same word exactly in the third verse of the first chapter of this epistle, they said, in the heavenlies. They said, in the heavenlies, there they say, in high places here. Fair play to the authorized translators. You see, they wanted to give this idea, and they're right that the devil and all his cohorts and his legions, they are not in heaven. They are not surrounding the throne of God. No, no. So he, they hesitated about saying in the heavenlies, and you and I should be careful as to how we put this. We mustn't think that the devil and these powers are in the immediate presence of God with all the holy angels and emissaries and powers and principalities and potentates. No, no, they're not there. Well, where are they? Well, this has been a matter of great discussion throughout the centuries, and we really can't arrive at a final answer. There have been some who have thought that it means in the air, when we say we look up into the heavens, the sky, the air, the atmosphere immediately above us. That was believed for centuries, that these evil powers are between us and God, as it were. They're above us, they're in the atmosphere, and they're looking down upon us and controlling us. But that surely is to materialize it too much. I'm not disputing that there may be something in it. After all, the devil is the prince of the power of the air. But again, the whole notion is surely this. The term is used to give us a contrast with the earth. We normally speak about heaven and earth, don't we? Heaven and earth. In other words, 
the, the high places, the heavenly places, the heavenlies really means that these powers which are opposed to us and against us and are making war on us as the saints of God are not on our earthly level. We must get rid of this notion of man, not flesh and blood, not on earth. Well, where? Well, in the spiritual realm, in the realm of the heavenlies. It's just another way of emphasizing what I said at the beginning, that we must always think of the enemy who is fighting against us as one who is not only personal and all his agents are personal, but also one who lives in that realm of the spirit. And there, says the apostle, is the starting point, the point of departure, the thing that you have to realize before you go any further at all. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What then? Oh, against the devil, God of this world, principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against spirits of evil, evil spirits. In the spiritual, in the heavenly realm. Thank God that he introduced all this by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. If you go from this congregation this morning uh, discouraged, well, you haven't understood it. Are you truly a Christian? I'm saying you've got to realize that this is the enemy, yes, but you see he's already told us, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the whole armor of God. This is the glory of the Christian position. That though I am confronted by such an enemy, I need not be afraid. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, roameth about seeking whom he may devour. What am I to do? Am I, am I hopeless? Do I run away and cry not at all? Whom resist steadfast in the faith? They overcame him. The old dragon himself. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Of course. But don't let that thought make you feel I needn't worry about the enemy. Remember, says Paul, you've got to stand after every victory. Don't relax. Don't go on holiday. There's no holiday in the spiritual realm. Stand. Watch. Pray. Be steadfast. Hold on. It's all right. But you've got to stand. And you are offered the armament, the ability to stand to withstand, and having done all things, to stand. Amen.